Okay, well, thank you for accommodating the day change. You may already have realised that Literature in Form is an inadequate title for this um, ragbag of lectures and classes. Um, unreliable narration isn't a form, it's a mode. Um, comparative literature is... Um, well, I'm spending an hour discussing what comparative literature is next week, but that's not really formal either. Um, but Russian formalism has something to do with form, though it's by no means exclusively concerned with it. Um, that and Czech structuralism, you're all very, welcome, uh, very warmly welcome to. That's in week five in seminar room B. No prior knowledge of any relevant texts is needed, though some of you may well already have read some of the Russian formalists and indeed some Jakobsen, and he would count as a Czech structuralist. And then um, perhaps the oddity is what microtexts are, just very short forms of literature. Um, the haiku, for example, um, in poetry. But we'll be most of all looking at very short forms of prose. Um, the micro story, which is a very short, short story. And then we'll be going on to look at found pieces of very short prose, signs that you see that can be allowed to resonate, like mind your head. It was in fact mind your head when I saw that on the sign above some steps down to a cellar um, that really started me um, thinking about the whole issue of very short forms of prose and how, how they can function as poetry. So that will be um, really an exercise in close reading. That's in sixth week. Yeah, the anomaly is next week. What is comparative literature? What indeed? And I've put scare quotes. They are scare quotes around the comparative because I think that's a strange adjective. And um, a lot of thought, as you may have found yourselves already, comes from a sense of irritation, a sense of irritation that something doesn't quite make sense. And as long as I've heard of such subject as comparative literature, I've thought that it wasn't coherent, that there's something fishy about the way that adjective is operating in relation to literature. So um, next week, I want to take that apart. Um, that's going to be fairly abstract, so any of you with a philosophical bent of mind may enjoy that. It's not that much to do with knowing different languages, that seems to be contingent, so it's by no means principally even directed at people who want to work in more than one language, though that will come into it. Okay, for this week, um, multiple plotting. You may well yourselves have realised by now that the vocabulary of plotting in literary theory is vexed. So consider the first point on your handouts. The word plot was first used to refer to the outline of a literary work, which is correspondent to Aristotle's term muthos in 1548 in the English language. Within half a century of that date, it meant, by transference, a secret plan or project which had a dastardly end in mind, like blowing up the Houses of Parliament. It was in the 20th century that the term plot, though, became confused. E.M. Forster pronounced confidently that, quote, the king died and then the queen died is a story. The king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. The time sequence is, is preserved, but the sense of causality overshadows it. However, a decade earlier in Petrograd, Vladimir Shklovsky had made the distinction, to be discussed further in week five, between fabula and sujet, 
which is the difference between what happens and how it is told. These terms, Shklovsky's terms, fabula and sujet, got translated into English as follows. Fabula, what happens, became story, and sujet, how it is told, became plot. And these two senses of story and plot eventually trumped Forster's. So if you want to use the, these, um, that binary distinction in Forster's sense, I would specify that that's what you're doing. But I think that these translations of um, these Russian formalist terms have been unfortunate. They're slightly misaligned to the common usage in English of both of those words. If you ask someone to tell you the plot of Twelfth Night, they're not likely to give you a scene-by-scene -scene summary, which would be plot in the structuralist sense. They're likely instead to tell you a rough outline of the developing relationships of the noble characters Orsino, Olivia and Viola Cesario. Then what happens with the lower life pro-speaking characters, Satobi, Feste and so on. And then they'd interpolate backwards to Sebastian's actions on the island, saying something like, and by the way, Viola, what she doesn't know is that her brother has survived and has ended up on the same island. And then they would describe the denouement. The word story, on the other hand, is often used to refer to a whole object rather than an abstract deduced from it. One does not sit a child down and read them a plot. But there it is. We get used to using these terms in the near, review, in the near reverse sense of their colloquial meanings when speaking narratologically. And then the story gets even more confused, or the plot, um, with the French structuralists. The French transla uh, translate fabula by either histoire or conte, and sujet by either récit or discours. Some structuralists, like colour, prefer to use the terms story and discourse to story and plot, but then that adds yet another burden to the already overburdened word discourse. If anything comprehensible has emerged from all of this, then it, then it promptly gets thrown by the term multiple plotting. When we talk about Middlemarch, say, being multi-plotted, are we not, in fact, saying that it has multiple stories? For example, the stories of Dorothea, of Lydgate and of Mary Garth, rather than their plots as narrated in the novel. So in the term multi-plotted, we have to accept that plot means story. But if we accept that Dorothea and Lydgate and Mary have their own plots in Middlemarch, then another problem arises. Could it not be objected that Casabon, Rosamond Vincy, Fred Vincy also have their own plots, as in fact do Celia, Fairbrother, Brooke, Ladislaw, Mr. Bulstrode, Mrs. Bulstrode, Raffles, and the Middlemarch gossip Mrs. Codwallader? Does not, in fact, every character who appears in a novel, perhaps more than once, you might like to say, have their own plot, and therefore there are always as many plots in novels as there are characters. I say that they have to appear more than once because if they don't, they don't have that extension in time which is necessary for a plot to exist. 
I don't think you need to think about that question for long to realise that there is a critical benefit to making a distinction between works with one obvious centre and works with multiple centres. For example, between Adam Bede and Middlemarch, or between Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, or between Oliver Twist and Bleak House. So what we are doing in making this distinction is in fact discerning the number of dominant plots in a novel. So um, this is now my own definition, point two. What I mean by dominant plots is the number of narratives which follow the lives of one character or a closely interconnected group of characters which have roughly equal significance to each other but are not dominated by any other of significantly greater importance in that novel. And by importance in that novel, I don't just mean textual space. There are several other criteria which, according to whatever your critical biases and predilections are, may be felt to determine importance. For example, how far one story helps to interpret another. To what extent it is dominated by Jakobsen, the Czech structuralist, by his poetic function. How heteroglossic it is, to use Bardeen's term. To what extent it affects a shift in the reader's horizon of expectations to use reader response vocabulary, how many of Issa's interpretative gaps it allows to the reader, how much didactic import it carries, how accurately it represents the world through perhaps its balanced tensions or its typicality, or whether it is atypical, or whether it involves an important human problem or a painful, urgent or admirable emotion, or whether that story belongs to a sympathetic character. All of these factors, and many other like them, can help to determine what we consider the most important plots in a work of fiction. I said that dominant plots are of roughly equal importance. You don't have to consider Dorothea's and Lydgate's plots in Middlemarch as of exactly equal importance to recognise that they both overwhelm the importance of the plots of Mr Brooke or Mrs Codwallader, and also to see that there are no other plots which are more important than theirs. The same is true of plots and subplots in drama. By the way, when we come to thinking about uh, multi-plotting, there's not much theory on this subject around you really need to go to dramatic criticism because it's in drama that, this is, that the issue of plotting has been best thought through. So King Lear is double plotted in having a plot which is Lear's and a subplot which is Gloucester's. But you certainly wouldn't describe the play as single plotted. It's not by coincidence that all the examples of novels I've taken so far are from the 19th century. If you run your mind across the 18th century novels you know, it may strike you that a lot of them are not only named for one character, but have only one central character whose story is told. Gulliver's Travels, Robinson Crusoe, Moll Flanders, Clarissa, Pamela, Shamala, Tristram Shandy, 
In the 19th century, the novel expanded in terms of numbers, readers, sales and prestige, if not length. And we see that novels also increase in the number and complexity of their plots. Look at point three on your handouts and try to find a single centre to Wuthering Heights, Sense and Sensibility, Shirley, Vanity Fair, Nicholas Nickleby, A Tale of Two Cities, Bleak House, Felix Holt, Middlemarch and Daniel Geronda. All of these have more than one dominant plot. Many were written between the 1840s and the 1870s, and I would suggest that it is that period in which multiple plotting was at its height. Serial publication and a realist wish to reproduce the multiplicity of life itself are just two of the factors which in this period favoured the multiplication of plots. And in a different way, they wished, a wish to reproduce the multiplicity of life itself also animated the modernists. Think of Ulysses, Mrs Dalloway, The Waves, The Rainbow, all of which have multiple centres. You'll notice that only a few of these novels, the ones I've printed in bold, point to multiplicity in their titles. Sense and Sensibility, a tale of two cities, point counterpoint. Some have geographical names which can set out the space within which multiple actions occur, Vanity Fair or Middlemarch. But some, like so many 18th century novels, give only a single character's name in a way which belies the importance of the other stories it contains. Daniel Deronda, as has been often pointed out, is misnamed in the sense that well over half of this novel is about Gwendolyn Harleth, who has a quite distinct plot of her own. Wuthering Heights is as much about Thrushcross Grange. And in, this case, in these cases, it's always worth asking, is the named character or place that which the novel is asking its readers to favour? Often, but not always, that's the case. Once you find several plots in a work, the question immediately poses itself, what does the work as a whole mean? Do the plots in their interrelations amount to anything greater than the sum of the parts? This is a question which we are relatively used to thinking about in relation to early modern drama. What is the relationship of the plot to the subplot of King Lear is a standard and expected exam question. We are not similarly used to thinking about the relationship of the Septimus Smith plot to the Mrs Dalloway plot, in part because, as I say, within um, studies of the novel, it's an undeveloped area of theory. Henry James, and I can't count the number of times which I've already quoted this, um, this famous quotation from James already in lectures of this year, once famously asked of the newcomes, Les Trois Mousquetaires and War and Peace, what do such large loose body monsters with their queer elements of the accidental and the arbitrary artistically mean? The question in relation to multi-plotted novels to revise his question is, what do such many-headed monsters actually mean? 
do their heads point to each other and have a coherent conversation which may be overheard and summarised, or do they point away from each other and refuse to, um, to converse, or perhaps they do speak to each other, but in different languages? And if they speak, what do they speak about? Before I start to try and answer those questions, I want to introduce a further distinction, that between the two-headed work the Zephod Bibelbrocks of the novel world, and the work with more than two heads, the Hydra of the, no the novel world. To this end, my vocabulary is going to have to go through a further mutation. The prefix multi will now be used to refer to more than two. So I'm going to be distinguishing double-plotted novels from multi-plotted novels. Consider point five. One of the features of double plots is that they can often be clearly distinguished as such. It is clear that Sense and Sensibility and Daniel Deronda and Ulysses have two main protagonists. But it is not so clear how many dominant stories there are in Middlemarch. I've suggested three so far, but some critics consider that there are four or more. An early critic of War and Peace compared that novel to an Indian idol, three heads or four faces and six arms. So he wasn't sure how to count War and Peace. And in fact, there is no critical agreement on that question either. Apparently, paradoxically, multiplicity can make it easier to understand the relations of plots to each other. What we have in Middlemarch is the world of an English Midlands town in the early 1830s. All of the different plots are connected by this town and can be related to it. And conversely, these plots between them create this world. No character is wholly divorced from any other, either in terms of their causal impact on each other's lives, however mediated, or in terms of interpretability. They exist in the same world of fiction, as well as the same fictional world. War and Peace is a more complicated case because it does have two kinds of action, as named in the title, and it covers everywhere from Prussian battlegrounds to Siberian drawing rooms to prisons um, to the St. Petersburg court. But the novel is rightly called an epic since it concerns the fate of a country and Russia is the mediating concept of the whole novel. In both of these novels, Middlemarch and War and Peace, the multiplicity of stories between them guarantee a single world of time, space and discourse. Just as in realist painting, where the implied perspectives are infinite, so, in this kind of realist novel, the implication of the multiple stories is that there could be, and in fact is, an infinitude of stories existing in that world. They just haven't all been narrated, or not all with the same level of detail. This setup also allows many different kinds of investigation to take place. A single situation may be studied in several different characters. So, for example, the situation of a man in a morally conflicted situation is explored in Lydgate and Bulstrode and Fairbrother. 
The situation of a young wife frustrated by her husband is explored in Dorothea and, very differently, Rosamond. The implication of these comparisons may be the great range of human character and experience. Or those comparisons may actually generate the reverse conclusion. The things that Lydgate and Bulstrode have in common despite their great differences may be thought to point to the limited range of human nature and the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. The case of a novel which is clearly double-plotted is rather different. Look at figure six and think of the stars. If you see three stars, you are likely to see a triangular constellation. Five stars might be Cassiopeia. A million stars, the Milky Way, war and peace. But given two stars, as shown in figure seven, you could be forgiven for seeing them as two separate stars, rather than a constellation. Perhaps because the, all they make up between them is a one-dimensional object, a line. Whereas once you have three points, you have two dimensions and therefore a shape. Henry James again, point eight, had a mortal horror of two stories, two pictures in one. The reason for this was the clearest. My subject was immediately under that disadvantage, so cheated of its indispensable centre as to become of no more use for expressing a main intention than a wheel without a hub is of use for moving a cart. Dryden, point nine, had a politicised distrust of such parity. When two axions are equally laboured and driven on by the writer, then there is no longer one play but two. Not but that there be, may be many actions in a play, but they must all be subservient to the great one, which our language happily expresses in the name of underplots. Coordination in a play is as dangerous and unnatural as in a state. Dryden uses the coordination in the sense first recorded by the OED for 1643 of positioning on an equal level. But it has to be said that in many double-plotted novels, the two plots seem to be getting on just fine without any threat of civil war. In fact, they cooperate in producing a coherent meaning. Point 10 suggests five different kinds of meaning which can be generated. The first is ethical comparison. Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood represent excesses of sense and sensibility respectively, but the novel leans more ultimately towards the side of sense. At the chronological beginning of Wuthering Heights, the Heights and the Grange represent respectively a deficiency and an excess of civilization, which render both of them unsustainable. The fact that the location of continuation through compromise is the Heights, however, suggests the novel's bias. Howard's End starts in the hands of the capitalist Wilcoxes, at the end of the novel, it is the site of the union of the Wilcoxes and the Schlegels, but in the future it will pass to a Bast Schlegel, Helen's Ill illegitimate son by Leonard Bast. So a place of plunge and beauty must, according to the dynamics of the novel, eventually reconcile cultures and bring English classes closer together.
In Arnold Bennett's 1908 novel, The Old Wives' Tale, Constance and Sophia Baines are sisters brought up in the Midlands town of Bursley. Their names are a giveaway. The constant Constance marries a man called Mr Povey and um, helps him to run a drapery shop. Her sophisticated sister, Sophia, however, elopes with a travelling salesman who then abandons her in Paris. After spending a while down and out in Paris, she builds up a successful pension and in her last years is reunited with her sister back in Bursley. The novel is not quite sense and sensibility though. Each sister's disposition has particular consequences for, for her at the stage in history at which she lives, but the novel is not a sermon to constancy. It is a tale of two cities which plays with its binaries as it, mediates, so as it meditates on the variety of human life across time, space and person. Double-plotted novels can also generate ironies. Charlotte Bronte's Shirley sets up certain expectations of marriage prospects or otherwise of contrasting friends Caroline Halston and Shirley Keeldar before challenging them and our understanding of character by marrying the self-expressive, willful Shirley to the taciturn but dominant Louis Moore and the tender, submissive Caroline to the Robert Moore who had displayed so much affinity for Shirley. In other words, double-potted novels can deliberately wrong-foot us. A third important function of double plots in the 19th century can be to explore the different experiences of men and women. Consider Nicholas Nickleby. At the beginning of the novel, a brother and a sister are left in the same situation, penniless by their father, and they part company in order to make their livings. Nicholas first goes to Do the Boys Hall in Yorkshire and then to the south of England where he joins an acting troupe. Whilst Nicholas travels, Kate remains stationary in London, where she is forced to defend herself from the lecherous advances of a Sir Mulberry Hawk, and who is only finally rescued when her brother returns. George Eliot's Romola partly disrupts this trope that you could see repeatedly in fiction of a stationary woman and a roaming man. In 15th century Florence, the lovely Romola marries the morally anemic Tito. His increasingly treacherous involvement in Florentine politics prompts Romola to make her own interventions and twice to run away from Florence. Tito's plots do him no good and he ends up dead on the banks of the Arno. But nor can Romola finally break away. Her attempts to save her family come to nothing she is finally always impelled back to her own place, the woman's place, caring for the weak and the sick inside Florence. An archetypal expression of geographic gender difference appears a century later in the 1957 novel Foss by the American novelist Patrick White. Laura Trevelyan is a young lady of Sydney high society in the 1840s. She meets the German explorer Foss, V-O-S-S, just before he sets out to lead an expedition across the bush from east to west Australia. They establish a telepathic connection, which they maintain for the rest of the novel, even though she remains in her comfortable Sydney house whilst he encounters the dangers of the bush. 
The fourth kind of dynamic which I listed is the decomposition of one person's traits between two characters for the purposes of analysis. So here I want to take a German example, Hermann Hesse's 1930 novel Narziss und Goldmund. Set in the Middle Ages, it concerns a monastic teacher, Narciss, who represents the male, Apollonian, godly, logical and scientific, and his golden-haired pupil, Goldmund, who one day, out gathering herbs, discovers sex and spends the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the novel embracing the Dionysian, the artistic, the expansive, the female and the sexual. The conversations of these two close friends are the conversations of an ordinary soul, a split one with itself. In a related case, a decade earlier, of Steve Landidalus and Leopold Bloom in Ulysses, the different parts of the soul keep missing each other, and even at the end of a thousand pages and an entire odyssey could hardly be described as close friends. So far, the types of meaning which I've been offering have been synchronic, that is, they lack the dimension of time. Double-plotted novels often do explore time, though. Wuthering Heights, the most, geograph the, the most geometric novel I can think of, is split two ways along the axes of space and time. There are the Heights and the Grange, and the first and the second generations, so it's a square. The second operates as a function of the first in that the relations of, between the houses are worked out through the transition of the generations. Of course, all of these novels are vastly more complex than I've just described them. But I would suggest that the relations between their dominant plots are not obviously perplexing or enigmatic. For the rest of this lecture, I'd just like to consider a few cases of double-plotted novels which I think do present interpretative problems. So the kind of problems um, involved are listed in point 11. Let's take Bleak House. You have the first-person retrospective narrative of Esther Summerson, which mainly concerns life at the eponymous Bleak House, and the third-person per present-tense narrative, which is concerned particularly with Lady Deadlock and the Courts of Chancery. You might think that the connection between the, the narratives is revealed to us and Esther progressively over the novel, and that the two heroines are shown to be related not only by blood, but a lawsuit. But the notion that everything in Bleak House is connected to everything else by the fog of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce is itself a notion which fogs. The relation between the narratives remains problematic in part because they are two different kinds of narrative. Esther tells us that she's uncertain to begin her part of the narrative because she is sure she is not clever. She knows then that she is participating in a collaborative venture. But the identity and indeed the substantiality of the three-quarters omniscient third-person narrator is never made clear. Nor, then, is their relation. This is a gulf at the heart of the novel into which meaning can fall. In other cases, a novel which seems to set up an ethical contrast 
but never quite supports it. Vanity Fair is a good example of this. The amoral, gold-digging Becky Sharp and her mild, loving childhood friend Amelia Sedley part ways as soon as they leave school. For the rest of the novel, they go through ostentatiously parallel situations. Finding a husband, having a child, losing a husband, being ruined and finding another husband. They ought to constitute an ethical binary, but they don't. Cause and effect connections between their stories are often set up and then fail. We may at any given moment favour one character over the other, as the narrator also does. But this narrator does not allow us to rest in the favouring of either one. Thackeray famously said, I want to leave everybody dissatisfied and unhappy at the end of the story. We, all, we ought all to be with our own and all other stories. The reader, as the hermeneuticist Wolfgang Iser points out, is forbidden from resting either in superior detachment from or sympathetic involvement with either of his protagonists. Becky represents comedy, Amelia, pathos, and the fabric of the novel is unstable and iridescent with both. In this case, the failure of binary didacticism is acknowledged by the rhetoric of the novel itself. In other, yet more complex cases, the failure seems not to be acknowledged. D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love offers what seems to be a startling example of narrative eschatology. On the one hand, there are Ursula and Birkin, who escape from the Alps into Italy, and although they end the novel, admittedly, famously, in the middle of an argument, and they have no idea where they're going to spend the rest of their lives, the prospects for their marriage seem, relatively, within the novel, good. On the other hand, there is the couple Gerald and Gudrun. Gerald ends up frozen at the top of the Alps. Gudrun appears in, um, disappears to Dresden with a bisexual paedophilic sadist artist called Lurker and is not heard of again. So by virtue of what do the fates of these two couples diverge so widely, even between marriage and death? In his review of Women in Love, John Middleton Murray, Lawrence's sometime friend, expressed bewilderment that the relationships of the two couples, which he found to be indistinguishable as characters, purported to represent, quote, supreme realities, positive and negative, of a plan of consciousness the white race has yet to reach, leading one pair to undreamed of happiness might be overstating it, and the other to attempted murder and suicide. In fact, these two couples can be distinguished in certain ways. In Gudrun and Gerald, it could be argued, what Lawrence calls the flux of corruption dominates over the flux of creation. Their connection is principally one of lust. Their moments of greatest sexual intensity are described as degenerative rather than transcendent. In addition, I think the narrative punishes Gerald for refusing Blutbrüderschaft, blood brotherhood, 
with Birkin. But the reader is forced to work at those distinctions and may be unconvinced by them as a justification of the divergent fates of the couples, even when they think they found them. In other words, to some extent, I think that Gerald is being scapegoated for his rejection of Birkin, and the massive divergence of the fates isn't quite justified by the actual spiritual distinctions of those two couples. Finally, I wanted to come on to Daniel Deronda, one of the most famously problematic double-plotted novels in the English language. Its two plots concern Daniel, a young Englishman who discovers that he is a Jew, marries a Jewess, and at the end of the novel leaves England on a Zionist mission to Palestine, and Gwendolyn Harleth, a young Englishwoman who makes a disastrous marriage to a sadistic aristocrat called Grandcourt, and appeals to Daniel as her spiritual advisor. Now, that's the connection of the two stories. Gwendolyn's and Daniel's meetings throughout the novel. Daniel is himself the linchpin character, being connected by adoption to the family that Gwendolyn marries into. But he is increasingly involved with Jewish characters who are nearly all of a lower social class than his own. So he is the connecting factor, but despite that, I would say that the Jewish and the Gentile halves of the novel are strikingly disconnected. Most of the Gentiles never meet most of the Jews. Many of the characters in this novel aren't even aware of the existence of the other set of characters. Gwendolyn is half aware that her spiritual advisor Daniel is becoming increasingly interested in Jews, and at one moment in the novel, she spends a few minutes in a room adjacent to one of the novel's most important Jewish characters, Mordecai. But she shows absolutely no interest in meeting him, and therefore she never does meet him. For, as far as Mordecai is concerned, it is not certain that he ever knows of the existence of Gwendolyn Harleth, who takes up half of the novel in which he exists. Nor are the stories related by causation. Daniel's advice to Gwendolyn makes no difference to the fact that Gwendolyn marries or to the fact that her marriage ends. For his part, his connection with her influences none of the major decisions of his own life. No wonder that F.R. Leavis argued that what he called the good part of Daniel Deronda could be prized from the strongly and very questionably emotional part and simply reissued as a new novel called Gwendolyn Harleth. Now, there are various things one can make of the relations of these two plots. One of the most obvious is, again, ethical contrast. Not only does the novel's rhetoric admire and approve of Daniel more than it does of Gwendolyn, but it has a vision of renaissance for the Jewish people, whereas it presents a world of English gentility, in both senses of the term gentility, which is spiritually and genetically moribund. The English characters have almost no religious faith, lacks sexual ethics, are in Matthew Arnold's sense Philistines, and when they reproduce, have only female children. The novel indeed shows the influence of Darwin. The English upper classes, it seems to suggest, are on the way out. Whereas new peoples, such as Jews, are on the rise. 
Indeed, it was the opposite response to a similar perception that fed the popular and state-sponsored anti-Semitism of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. This, then, is one way of making sense of the novel criticising the Gentile world from the perspective of a deeper and healthier culture. But I would say that doesn't quite work. It still leaves all kinds of problems. Gwendolyn suffers a tragedy. Daniel tries to help but can't. What is the relevance of, uh, relevance of Judaism or of Daniel's own comedy to this tragedy? You might argue that the novel is so thoroughly Darwinian that it doesn't actually care for individuals anymore, just the species. And Gwendolyn is a representative casualty of a declining species. But the narration of those passages of the novel which concern her doesn't support that either. Crucially, Gwendolyn has no Judaism and she is a woman. For both reasons, she can't just up sticks and move to Palestine. And for both reasons, comparison of her actions with Daniel's is somewhat unfair. In fact, I would say the whole novel feels as though it's divided into two worlds, and Gwendolyn lives in the wrong one, with no possibility of moving to the other. The issue of worlds requires a little expansion. A world, according to the OED, does not just mean the earth and all created things upon it, but a group or system of things or beings associated by common characteristics, and the sphere within which, in, within which one's interests are bound up or one's activities find scope, like the world of golf, the world of hedge fund managing, or of narratology. In the context of a novel, I will call such an intersubjective world a domain. It may be centred around one or a few characters, and its common characteristics may be geographical, social or aesthetic. Now, the number of a, of a novel's domains and plots do not necessarily coincide. Think of Moll Flanders, Tom Jones, Jane Eyre, Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Their eponymous protagonists travel across several different domains. Moll goes from Newgate to Virginia to Bath to Lancashire to Maryland to Virginia. Tom meanders from Somerset to London via many social classes. On the other hand, in many double-plotted novels, the plots cohabit a domain. Sense and Sensibility. Vanity Fair. I mentioned that multiple plots in a novel can constitute a coherent world. In double-plotted novels, you can get a stereophonic effect, as between Becky Sharp and Amelia Sedley, who between them constitute a three-dimensional world of Vanity Fair. But there are other double-plotted novels in which the two plots have two domains. Bursley and Paris in The Old Wives' Tale. Sydney and the Bush in Foss, The Monastery and the World in Narcissus und Goldmund, and um, Europe and Little Jewish Ghettos within it are the two domains of Daniel Deronda. In the last case, the domains are not just geographic, social and racial, but aesthetic. Many critics have commented that the two plots are written in different ways and have different narrative voices. 
The narrator of Gwendolen's domain is a dryly witty Gentile who is knowledgeable about Judaism but, and also sharply critical of Gentiles. The narrator of Daniel's domain is an earnest person whose verbal style is suspiciously close to that of Daniel himself. The first narrator observes with ironic understatement, we English are a miscellaneous people. The latter exemplifying the kind of, of writing that Lytton Strachey laughed at in the Victorians observes, the velvet canopy never covered a more goodly bride and bridegroom to whom their people might more wisely wish offspring. The narrator of Gwendolyn's story would not write like that. The Gentiles tend to be more thickly described and they have more physical presence. Gwendolyn is palpably antipathetic to sex. Grandcourt is palpably a sexual sadist. Myra and Mordecai, on the other hand, have no sexuality whatsoever. In the Gentile domain, animals, such as horses and dogs and prawns, are real. Whenever they turn up in the Jewish world, they are similes. There's also a difference of genres. The Gentile domain is a place of irony, bathos and individual tragedy. The Jewish domain is one of national tragedy, national resurgence, and, in Daniel's case, an individual romantic comedy. In the latter, wildly improbable things occur, and fates slot into place, for which reason Daniel's story is sometimes called a romance. The Gentile domain is the more realistic world to which Henry James's portrait of a lady owes so much clearly could not have been written but for Daniel Deronda. So much of this novel strains to make the Jewish world relevant to the Gentile one and to make Daniel relevant and useful to Gwendolyn. But the Jewish world is by definition exclusive and finally the central characters have to part company. Daniel painfully shares the consciousness that the novel has that they and their stories have ultimately failed to meet. This sense of disjunction between the two stories has been the dominant critical position for most of the time since the novel was published. The first reviewers complained about it. Some Jewish editions did the reverse of what Levis proposed and simply cut out the Gentile half. But since the 1970s in particular, an increasing number of critics have argued that the novel is in fact coherent. The two novels are connected by hidden economies of imagery, of affect and of meaning. I think that such critics have found a lot in the novel that is there, but I would voice a warning. Critics, from the very outset of their education as such, are trained to find meaning and for that reason can very easily overlook its absence. Barbara Hardy criticised the new critical propensity for demanding and finding coherence in multi-plotted novels. She says, we insist that the large loose baggy monster has unity, has symbolic concentration, has patterns of imagery and a thematic construction of character, and in a result the baggy monster is processed by our new criticism into something strikingly like the original streamlined Jamesian beast. To return to our metaphor of the heads, we should not pretend to overhear the, the novel's two heads saying things to each other which in fact they are not. 
The new critical training which underlies, consciously or not, so much of what we do, makes us consider a work as a whole. But this, not should, make us, this should not make us assume that any given novel is, in fact, a well-functioning, organic whole. Nor should we necessarily accept what authors say about this. George Eliot expressed impatience with readers who cut the book, Daniel Deronda, into scraps and talk of nothing in it but Gwendolyn. I meant everything in the book to be related to everything else there. And she uses an organic metaphor for connection within a single work of art. Six years before starting Daniel Deronda, in Notes on Form in Art, she wrote that the highest form then is the highest organicism. That is to say, the most varied group of relations bound together in a wholeness, which again has the most varied relations with all other phenomena. Forms of art can be called higher or lower on the same principle as that on which we apply these words to organisms, viz. in proportion to the complexity of the parts bound up into an indissoluble whole. Yet this metaphor, if tweaked, is also helpful. Daniel Deronda is an organism in which the vital organs work imperfectly together and which must die when their relationship breaks down altogether. The novel does not outlive the ultimate separation of Daniel from Gwendolyn. I want to conclude by suggesting that one way of avoiding the, of avoiding the overstatement of either disjunction or cohesion in this or any other double-plotted novel is to consider the tension between the two impulses. Since the mid-1970s, an, increase, an increasing proportion of critics who have found Daniel Deronda to be disjunct have found significance in this disjunction. They are divided between those who think that the disjunction was intentional and those who think that it was unintentional. I am with the latter group, but I think that the novel is nonetheless aware of its failure to connect. Daniel's failure to help Gwendolyn, Judaism's failure to unite peoples. And I think that it is in this tension between cohesion and division that Daniel Deronda reveals particularly clearly the dynamics of many double-plotted novels. Peter Garrett, whose, point I, whose book I've listed as the last point on the handouts, describes the meanings of Victorian multiplot novels as dialogic in Bakhtin's sense, since their form is neither single nor multiple focus that incorporates both. And it's in the interaction and tension between these structural principles that produces some of their most important and distinctive effects. To regard a Victorian multiplot multi novel as instances of dialogic form is therefore not a solution to the problem of structure, but a way of reading their structure as inherently problematic. I would therefore advise you to be on the lookout for problems as well as solutions. Thank you.